Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Freddie Gibbs, the rapper, grew up in Gary, Indiana. It's about an hour outside of Chicago, a Rust Belt town. It also happens to be the home of Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. Freddie will be the first to tell you, Gary is a pretty rough place. Growing up there, he didn't really think much about becoming a rapper, like not once when he was a teenager. He was a good athlete, for one thing, but like a lot of kids in his neighborhood, he had a hard time staying out of the streets. It wasn't until he was a grown man that he learned he had a gift for rhyming, a sense of rhythm, and a voice that commands attention. Freddie raps about the streets, about the time he spent there, about the friends he knows who still are there, about friends he lost. And if there's a central theme in Gibbs' music, it's pain. A few years back, his career took an interesting turn. He started collaborating with Madlib, a producer and sometime MC from California, a guy who makes impressionistic, sometimes strange beats, who's known more for working with artsier, weirder MCs, like MF Doom. The album that Freddie and Madlib made together was Piñata, a record where two very different artists each thrive in their own element. It probably shouldn't work. But it does. Music is strange and beautiful. Freddie still raps about the streets. There's still that same pain. It just hits you harder. I reminisce on all the crazy did. You and me forever. He has a new album with Madlib. It's called Bandana. It's really great. Here's a track off of it. It's called Half Main, Half Cocaine. Freddie Gibbs, welcome to Bullseye. Thank oh, you for man, coming on the show. Appreciate y'all having me, man. Grateful to have you. Um, I have to say, when you made your first record with Madlib, mm-hmm. I was like, well, they're both good, but that's not the team that I would have. Like, like, if I was playing fantasy rap basketball, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would not have put any money on Madlib and Freddie Gibbs making a record together. Me neither. <laughs> were you? Were you even? Did you? Were you familiar with his music before? Uh, before the two of you got together? Somewhat, but not as familiar as I am now. But a, a little bit, you know what I mean. But um, I, I just look at it as a miracle, man. You know, we came together for some reason, but uh, you know. To you know, make classics, and I think you know everything we've done so far been classics. So it was worth it. How did you? How did you? How did the two of you meet the first time you met in real life? Oh, Lambo and Egon put us together, pretty much. That's your respective managers. Yeah, yep. They, they, you know, they've been working together and been cool, you know, for years. And um, you know, it was just a mutual thing. It was easy. We met at like the do over, like drinking sangria or something like that. That sound good. I think I want some of that right now. I'm, after I leave here, I'm going to go get sangria drunk. It's extremely hot in Los Angeles today. Yeah. What did the two of you talk about when you first sat down together? Do you remember? Me and Madlib? Yeah. Um, That's a good question. Really nothing, man. Just about like uh, music that we like. You know what I mean? I found out that his musical palette is uh, huger than most people's. What kind of things were you surprised to hear that he was into? Um, like the 808 type of music. A lot of the newer music, like the little Babies and the Baby and, you know, 
the Migos, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, he really into that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, there was a certain kind of underground hip hop fan who defined their hip hop fandom by what they weren't into. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine I never Mad Lib that. being that kind of guy. Yeah, that's that's the beauty of it. I never liked that. I never liked, because I've always been so such a, a versatile fan of rap. You know what I mean? I like all kind of rap. I mean, I like Feral Munch, and I like Offset. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, is that weird? Why do you have to be one thing or into one thing or confined to one thing? I thought that's what, like, hip-hop was trying to fight against. That's what, like, guys like Pimp C and um, guys like that were trying to fight against. They didn't want it all, you know, the radio and all of that stuff to be all East Coast at that time. You know, I felt like they fought to get it more diverse. And it's like now we kind of like did like a 180, you know what I mean? You grew up in Gary, Indiana. Were there MCs in Gary that you knew about when you were a kid and a teenager? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It was guys rapping before, definitely before I was rapping. Mainly the rap guys that, uh, you know, came out of Gary was like guys in the streets because uh, to rap, at that time, you had to kind of be in the streets. So most of the, you know, rap coming out of Gary at that time was like hardcore street gangster-ass rap, you know. That's what I, that's what we was around. That was our environment, so. Was, do you mean that you had to be in the streets to rap because that was what was expected of those records or simply because there wasn't anybody giving anybody a record deal? Correct. There wasn't anybody giving anybody a record deal, so it's like, you know, the guys that could afford studio time and the guys that, you know, could be in studios were like, you know, gangsters. You know what I mean? Like, there wasn't too many Rudy Pooh guys, like, in those studios at that time. Because it was gangsters funding those studios, funding the building, funding the equipment. You know what I mean? So it was like, kind of had to be, you know, a man of respect to be in those environments, period. I feel like when the Midwestern people that I know grew up with, you know, certainly everybody grew up with, in the 90s anyway, with the hip-hop from New York and Los Angeles to a certain extent, right? But it feels like in other places, besides those places, it is really treasured that there is hip-hop that is not from those places from all over the country. Like, you know, in Kansas City, they love E40. Correct. You know, like, I'm I'm from the Bay Area, and I love E40 because I'm, I'm from the Bay. I mean, also because he's great. But because I'm from the Bay, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, those guys always got love in, in Kansas City, Missouri. Correct. Because that was, you know, that was from a place outside of New York or L.A. Like, it was not just New York or L.A. And the same with Southern hip-hop, I feel like, in the Midwest. Like, right. there was a kinship, not because everybody was physically close, but just because there was an understanding, like, we are all not from New York or L.A. Right, yeah, and and, and you know what, man? Like, you know, the, the Midwest really is, I think, the biggest um, rap consumer region, you know what I mean? Like, I can really see Gage, a, uh, an artist's uh, popularity or reach, so to speak, like, when I see if they can, like, do shows in, like, Chicago and, like, Ohio and Detroit, you know what I mean? Because I feel like those are like their consumer regions more so than they are regions that um, produce homegrown rap or hometown hero. It's hard to come out of the Gary, Chicago, and, 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 and that whole Rust Belt because it's like when you pop out, your own, you know, they try to kill you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So first of all, so, and it's difficult. A lot of the times they're more into outside music more so than championing their own music, you know, at home, you know. I mean, I had to, like, you know, move to the West Coast to start getting, you know, musical notoriety. If I didn't, then, you know, I'd probably be in somebody's prison or or, or six feet deep. There were a few big national acts from Chicago. Definitely. Common and Twista, Do or Die. Mm -hmm. But... Not, I'm I'm struggling to think of more besides that pre pre Kanye, you know, mm-hmm. more than t- more than ten or fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, there was Bone Thugs who were from Cleveland, Cleveland right? Correct, yeah. There were a few here and there, but 
when you started rapping, did you think of being a guy from Gary? Rapping was like a way that you could actually make a lifelong career? Yeah, definitely. When I started doing it, I knew that I can do it. I can be a career artist in it, and I know that I can, you know, generate a, um, a decent amount of money off of it. And, uh, you know, I just came in with the sense, since I listen to so many different kinds of uh, music coming up, different kinds of genres, I mean, um, of uh, rap and music period coming up, I feel like my style, you know, um, is, is very versatile. I feel like I could rap on, like, uh, different kind of beats you can put me on a 808 mafia beat and then i can go an hour later and go make a song on a manlib beat i don't like to be confined to a region nor do i like to be confined to a certain um sound you know what i mean at the same time i don't want to be all over the place i want you to know when i put my signature on something you know but i want to you know i just try to be the most the most versatile artist in the rap game period you know i kind of look at it like positionless basketball like how Kevin Durant has made basketball positionless, you know what I mean? He can shoot, put the ball on the floor, and, you know, go to the post, defend, and, and he's seven feet tall. There's, like, nobody that can stay in front of him. I try to treat rap like that, like, like yeah, I'm from Gary, but, like, what does that really mean? You know what I mean? I'm from a small town in the Rust Belt, you know what I mean? So with, with limited opportunity. And the greatest artist ever to uh, grace music, period, is from there as well, you know? And he made music, like, it's, like, regionless, you know what I mean? It's just, like, a world thing. It's, it's, it's you know, the, with with that kind of, you know, spirit, I feel like I just carried that into my music as well. Like, I don't even look at it like I'm from nowhere. Like, nigga, I'm from everywhere, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can go anywhere I want to go, you know, do anything I want to do musically. I don't put a cap on myself musically or in, in any kind of way, you know. Did you know when you were a kid that Michael Jackson and the Jacksons were from Gary? Yeah, definitely. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Definitely. I, that was, I mean, it, that, there's, that's the pride, and that's still to this day the pride and joy of Gary, Indiana. No question. For forever. They put the city on the map. If the Jacksons never came out of there, it wouldn't be the same, wouldn't have the same aura. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Freddie Gibbs. Your life had already gone down a few different paths before you started getting serious about having a rap career. Yeah. Initially, you were an athlete, right? You you had a football yeah, scholarship. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, yeah, I was playing football at uh, Ball State University. Shout out to Ball State. I remember Muncie, Indiana. Shout out to Muncie, Indiana. Shout out to David Letterman. Yeah, David Letterman. He's definitely the most uh, famous uh, alumnus from that school. But yeah, man, I you know went there, played ball for a year, wasn't uh, doing everything that I was supposed to do. Got kicked out of school. Did you like college? Were you regretful when you got? No, I didn't like college. It was whack. I didn't want to go to school no more, man. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't want to do any more scholastic activity after I left high school. I was like, nah, man. I don't want to do homework any of that i was ready for the world you know make money and just start having things i thought that you know once you become an adult you just start automatically having things but that's (laughs) that's not the case you know what i'm saying i'm like damn well my car apartment i'm like okay i wanted the 40 acres and a mule i thought i was supposed to get you know what i'm saying but uh you know it's steps to getting to the things you want in life and you know i was ready i was trying to skip a lot of steps you know what i mean skipping school you know um selling crack selling heroin to get a leg up, all of that stuff was uh, could have been a detriment, you know, to my life. How did you end up rapping? Were you writing verses before you went away to college? Rodney Allen, that's the reason. My friend Rodney Allen, my, my boy Rod, I grew up. We we grew up on the east side of Gary. One day, you know, I was working in this. Uh, after I got kicked out of uh, college or whatnot, you know, what I mean, I'm like 19, 20 years old. So I'm working at this this janky shoe store called uh, Payless. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm familiar with this story. (laughs) Purveyor of vinyl shoes. My uncle worked there, you know what I mean? So, you know, my mom kind of made me work there too because, you know, she knew I was, you know, out here trying to be Tony Montana, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) So she was like, nah, you about to go somewhere and get a job real quick. So I was working there and uh, my homeboy was like, walking through the village, you know, laughing at me. Everybody's laughing at me because I was working this janky job and, you know, 
Aquaman, the tie, looking stupid. So he was laughing at me, and then he was he had these CDs in his pocket, and I was like, what is this? And then I picked up a CD, and I was like, man, it's crazy, dog. I was like, you got your face on a CD, with a barcode on it and all of this. You signed to a record label or something? He was like, nah, I did all this myself. And I was like, how you do this? He was like, man, all right, man, just come ride with me. I'll show you, you know, how we do it. He a barber, you know what I mean? So I was going to his basement and getting my hair cut. So I hear be cutting my hair. I'd be soaking up the game. I'd just be letting him just talk about it. And then he started talking about the studio he was going to. And um, he introduced me to this guy named Finger Roll that had a studio in uh, Gary. And uh, once I started, like, going up there with him, I'd just go. I wasn't even thinking about rapping, you know what I mean? I didn't know if I wanted to get into this the rap way, the executive way, or be a DJ or something. Or I was like, maybe I'll be his manager or something like that. But uh, once I got in there, man, and then, like, it was at Finger Roll Studio, and I was just start seeing, like, the caliber of rappers that was coming in there. And I'm like, man, this ain't good. This ain't good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I was like, man, I could do this. You know what I'm saying? And once I started getting in my head that I could do that, then it was a rap, you know what I mean? And, you know, the, you know, the outside forces of things that I was going through in my life, you know, gave me some things to rap about, you know what I mean? Like, I was working odd jobs, I was selling crack, you know what I mean, uh, losing crack, you know what I mean, getting beat up by drug dealers for on the money. Um, I was, you know, beefing with gangs from across the tracks. So it was like I had all of that, all of that pain crumbled up, you know, I was defeated. So I used all of that to, you know, become undefeated. So I just started like, everybody that was like dissing me, like, and they, they, they was making music too. So I just started like dissing them back making diss raps of other rappers and Gary and stuff like that. And then, like, I was, like, putting my phone up on it. It's like I had balls, you know what I mean? Like, everything I was doing was ballsy. It's like, man, at that point, I didn't really care if I got killed or not, you know? It was The music, the music was kind of like a manifesto. And then, like, you know, Lambo found it at being an intern because I put my phone number on it. And then he called me, and the rest is history. And we've been rocking ever since. Did you know at the beginning what kind of instrument you had? I mean, did you ever have a moment where you could look? I'm a professional public radio host, right? Right. I'm supposed to have pipes. Right. And I'm fine. I do. I do okay in that department. Mm-hmm. I'm not unqualified for Definitely. that job. But you're putting me to shame here. You think so? I think so. Oh no way. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, I think you got a heck of an instrument there. I feel like the first time if if I was you. Right. You know, you sound different inside your head and outside and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, like, the first time I talked into, wrapped into a microphone, played it back, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I sound pretty good. <laughs> that, that's how that's how I felt. I was like, oh, man, that, that ain't bad. I mean, my first rap was probably, like, some, like, 50-bar uh, freestyle type thing. I didn't know what it was, you know what I mean? But it was definitely unstructured, but um, it was good. You know, I had patterns, I, and uh, I'm, you know— light years ahead of the rapper that I was at, you know, 23 years old. But, um, you know, at the time, man, you know, I was light years ahead of the the guys around me. So I stood out instantly. And it was just, you know, I try to trace back to where the rapping ability came from for me because I really don't know, man. You know, I look at it like Virgin Mary, baby Jesus. I woke up with this stuff one day because I, I definitely wasn't the guy at school being on the desk rapping at school. I never had the dream of being a rapper at all, period. I always knew coming up in my life that I was going to be somebody, some something of notoriety, but I didn't know what it would be. Hopefully, I thought it would be an athlete. That's my dream. I still dream about being an athlete every day. I, I go to the gym and work out like I'm <laughs> going to the NFL. But um, I didn't know what, you know, where I would make my mark in life, but I knew I would make it in some kind of light. But uh, definitely not rapping, man. Was there like a Gary Indiana section in Murder Dog? It was. I was in it. It was a rap magazine. <laughs> yeah, I was in it. It's, it's crazy you say that. That's the first magazine I was ever in. Uh, it was Murder Dog. And I was in there because um, of my buddy Finger Roll. Like, he was getting, he was one of the, um, you know, main producers in the area at that time. And he was getting notoriety because he was working with a lot of guys from Chicago, like Drama Ward and 
Twister and guys like Traxter, legendary Traxter, shout out to Traxter, you know, just to see finger roll rubbing elbows with guys like that was motivation because, you know, those were the guys, you know, from the area that you looked up to that you wanted to be like, you know, the Twisters, Crucial Conflicts, you know what I mean? When it came to making music, you wanted to be, you know, especially from a local standpoint, you wanted people from a local standpoint to just talk about you like they talked about them, you know. They used to have Murder Dog at the, you know, like at the, at the bookstores that would have a lot of magazines, right. like your Barnes and Nobles or whatever, they'd have those racks and racks of magazines. There'd be Murder Dog there, and you'd go and sit there and hope nobody kicked you out while you were reading it. Right. And, you know, <laughs> the great thing about Murder Dog was, like, not only would it be, like, coming from San Francisco, I, you know, you'd read about all oh, these these rappers from the film, more of these rappers from HP, this is the Oakland thing, you know, whatever. Right. But you would get, it'd be like, oh, these are, these are dudes that are happening in Memphis. This is what's happening in Cincinnati or whatever. And it was like a, a window into another world. Right. You know, because you know about the dudes from your city mostly, but you're like, oh, this is everywhere. Like, this is, every place has its dudes. That's how I learned about the Bay, Murder Dog Magazine. I'll be like, damn, man, the Bay got so many rappers. I'm like, they their own world. It's crazy. I'm like, these dudes is rich. Cause the, the, the Bay was the first guys, really, that I looked at. Them and, like, 3-6 Mafia, I'd say, Memphis or something like that. Because I was looking at it, and I was like, damn, these guys don't have, like, major record deals. But these dudes is rich. How do I do that? Your first record deal was not that long after you started rapping. Correct. And it was with a huge record label. Right. You moved out to Los Angeles to work on the record. That's what brought you out here to Southern California. Yeah, straight from high school, straight to the league. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> that record deal lasted years. Not really. How 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 long until a how year. long until you gave up? A year, about about a year. What yeah, was I'd that? I'd say about that, about eleven months. I'd say. You talked about going straight from high school to the league you know there's mm -hmm. people there's people who at that age mm -hmm. you were what like in your very early 20s yeah. right like 2021 hit the big time that way and when it doesn't work out when they can't cut it in the nba it's tough to readjust and figure out what the path is you know right, what i mean definitely <laughs> like you th you think oh well i can just do it but when it, that doesn't happen it's hard to figure out how you go play in Italy or whatever, right? And and come back in two years after you play here in the in the D League or whatever. Yeah. And I wonder what it was like for you, a guy who had not spent half your life planning this out, right? To like get the big break, and you never you never put out a record on that deal. Uh, yeah, it was um, heartbreaking. Uh, I'd definitely say one of the most like darkest points in my life I could you know I could sit up and you know try to act hard and say it was easy to shake off but that was heartbreaking man like to get dropped from your record label I was like man it's the first thing I'm really about you know I can kicked out of school like you know nothing's really like working out for me in life and I'm like man this is the first thing that I'm doing that I'm I'm exceptional at I'm like bro I'm great at rapping like you know I'm like man there ain't that many people that could rap as good as I'm as I could rap it just let me know like no matter how polished I was uh, or skillful I was at rapping, I had to learn the business. The music business was about to take me on a 10-year journey to get to where I wanted to be in the game. I had to really, you know, sit and look myself in the mirror and, and see if I wanted to go on that journey. If I go, if I was to get into DeLorean right now and go back to the, that time and be like, hey, bro, it's going to take you 10 years to get here, but look, it's all gonna be fine, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you, you just gotta go through a grind. You are you willing to sacrifice it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I wish I could do that for every artist. Like man, picture yourself ten years later, or six years later, or seven years later, and 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 then go back in time and 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 see where you'll be at. I feel like when we're we're about the same age, and like I'm lately, have been thinking like, oh, I guess I did those things that I set out to do when I entered the real world right. but the pain that i remember most vividly was not about how hard i had to work because i loved doing what i was doing it was it's easy to work hard when you love what you're doing i mean it's still hard but right. 
But the thing that I remember being the most painful was feeling like if success was a 10 and I was at a 1, I wished that I could see when I had made it to 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Like, I wish that I knew when I was working hard, I could see directly the fruit of my labor and like that I, oh, I moved up a rung today. Right. Whereas I, for most of that time, I, I really felt like I wasn't sure whether I was throwing my work into a hole. Right. I, I wonder if that was part of the challenge for you is that like so much of that is yeah. you don't know that it's going to work. Right, man. You know I, mean, I mean, you know, yeah, definitely, man. You start feeling like you're doing this music for nothing when you're not, when you're not getting the notoriety or the um, or the praise that you, you know, deserve. And you were, I mean, like, look, I'm a public radio host. I knew that if I became successful when I was 60, I'd still have a 20-year career ahead of me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It would be it would be better for me to be 60 than to be 28 or however old I was. You're you're a rapper, and, you know, it's only recently that rappers over 25 has been a thing. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, the game's getting definitely getting younger and younger, but... uh I think that rappers are only not happy nowadays, like if they're if they don't have any money, you know what I mean, or or they're not generating money or generating funds. But uh, as long as you're doing that, I think the popularity thing is a little bit, you know, low on the low on the scale now because, uh, you know, I feel like when when I uh, got dropped from my first record deal, um, I didn't know that that you can make money in the music industry without having a record deal. You know what I mean? And so I looked at the guys in the South, I looked at the guys in the Bay, you know, um, their business models and took things from those and kind of created my own, you know, and with the um, implementation of streaming, it definitely changed the game. So uh, I got to a point where, you know, I was making a lot of money and didn't really care about moving to the next level of uh, notoriety or fame with the music. You know what I mean? You can get content so, uh, you know, when I start working on this last project, I was like, all right, let me not be content and let me try to, like, step things up a notch because, like I said, on a, on a musical, on a rap, on a lyrical level, there's not many, you know, people that can, you know, compete with what I do. So the remainder of uh, projects that I'm, you know, be putting out, I think they just deserve the best looks, best, best, best window opportunity. What do you think you learned about rapping? in that time i mean you got your big break when you had been rapping for a year or something right. <laughs> um I, I i learned about uh definitely um taking your time because i used to like write every rap in like three minutes five minutes like i was like running a race i think that's what made me so good at it like uh being in a room with other rappers and just trying to compete that competitive spirit i'm a real competitive guy so that really made me better at it just uh, uh being around different producers you know i was uh you know been fortunate enough to be around guys like just blaze and dj quick and you know all kind of different guys that i learned different things from different tricks learning how to record how to do this with my voice how to do that with my voice learning when to breathe learning when to you know uh pause not say a word like uh being more melodic just uh being able to, you know, witness my own development is uh, it's, it's crazy because I can just go back and listen to where I was, what the the way I was recording five years ago when I was making, even the way I was recording when I was making Pinata is like night and day compared to the way that I record when I make Bandana. We'll finish up my interview with Freddie Gibbs after a quick break. We'll talk about why he starts every live show with a prayer backstage. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace allows small businesses to design and build their own websites using customizable layouts and features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. Squarespace also offers built-in search engine optimization to help you develop an online presence. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You know Jonathan Van Ness as a fabulous cast member of Netflix's Queer Eye. But as a kid, I was basically just like a geode-obsessed, stamp-collecting, rock-collecting, obsessed with gymnastics. Jonathan Van Ness on his transformation and his new book. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Freddie Gibbs. I do want to give you a warning. A couple of years ago, Gibbs was acquitted of sexual assault in Europe. We are going to talk about that in this next block of the show, although there are no descriptions of sexual assault. Let's get back to my conversation with Freddie Gibbs. I think you have a really distinctively flexible style as a rapper. Mm -hmm. Like... There's a long tradition of gangster rappers with powerful voices and declamatory styles, you know, people who are making pronouncements. Right. Whether that voice is deep and rich or, you know, whether it's easy E and it just cuts through everything, right? Right. And I can see your connection. You know, I, I hear Scarface when you're rapping, you know? Right maybe the most beautiful rap voice that's ever existed and one, one of the greatest rappers ever. But I also hear, especially on these Mad Lib records, Mad Lib beats are going all over everywhere. You know, it's not, right. it's not, it's not the most straight ahead beats in the world to rap over. Right. And you maintain that feeling of effortlessness even when you're rapping double time, when you're fast rapping. And... That is like to maintain your personality and your presence while moving through styles in that way and keeping your voice, metaphorically speaking, what it is when you're bending and flexing to these wild Madlib beats is a really impressive thing to me. There's not a lot of rappers who can be that flexible and remain themselves. Right. Yeah. Like, and. and there ain't a lot of rappers that can work with oldest, period. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I feel like if you can't mold yourself to those beats and just get in his world and just accept it, then, you know, I don't think you're going to come out successful. I uh, read a great interview where what you said that when you first started working with Mad Lib, you listened to uh, one of his collaborations with MF Doom, and you said to yourself, all right, I'm better than that. Right. I did. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I could rap like this. I mean, I could rap better than this. Like, I was like, this what everybody tripping off of? Mad villain? I was like, mad villain. I was like, okay, yeah, this is cool. I was like, that that was the thing. I was like, and Lambo was like, yeah, man, this is classic right here, man. This, this dude, he's stuck in London. He can't come back. And everybody want another album from him and all of this. And, you know, it was kind of like, I felt like Lambo was like challenging me. I like when people challenge me. I like when people tell me. Not necessarily saying that he said I couldn't do it, but it's like I like when people put a roadblock in front of me so I could be like, all right, let me knock that shit out of the way. Lambo and Egon never said we got to top this, but they always put that in my face, like this the classic, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I don't give a about that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I don't care about that. You know what I mean? Like the mad villain. I'm like, all right, that's cool. You know what I mean? Let me show this dude like how to really put some real pain on here instead of all these like goofy cartoon metaphors and stuff like that he's cool you know what i mean but i'm like man i'm about to like talk about some real stories some real crime stories some real street stories some drugs tales some you know what i mean some shootouts like i'm about to give you all of that ain't nobody ever gave you that on no mad little piece i know how much you love scarface i, I do too the rapper mm -hmm. scarface and um one of the things that i love about scarface as a rapper is his music never feels like it could come from anyone else. It's always very deeply personal. And when he raps about street stuff, which he still does now as a, you know, I guess face is probably in his mid late forties now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. About that. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, when he raps about street stuff, even when he was younger, uh, much younger, mm -hmm. you never felt 
far from the pain and regret that that stuff engenders, even in a person who succeeds or makes it out or any of those things. Like, you never lose sight of the sad part of being involved in street stuff. Right. Which is, you know, even if you're the world's greatest drug dealer right and you didn't get caught and you didn't go to jail and you got rich you still at some point handed drugs to somebody's mom or dad or whatever there's pain involved you know that you never could shake you know um, dealing with that lifestyle there's no happy ending to that lifestyle man so you know the best thing you know you could do is you know uh, if you gotta deal with that and, or be in that life is to you know make you enough where you could like start something else and start another business. It may not make it a lot, make a, as much money as that initially or whatnot, but do something where you you know become an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? Really, that's the main thing. You know, if you got to hustle, just hustle yourself up a business. You know what I mean? Like trying to be a career drug dealer is dangerous, and it's dangerous not just to you but your family, man. Because you're gonna be you're gonna be gone. Like it's it's inevitable. You're going to jail. Like eventually, you uh, you still rap about street stuff, right? Why is that? Why is that important to you? Why why is that the choice you made instead of instead of preferring to leave that behind? Correct. Um, I mean, really, man, I'm not far removed from it. You know, I mean, a lot of my friends are still in the streets. The rap game has afforded me to be able to not be in the streets, but you know, a lot of my close friends are still living those lifestyles. You know, what I mean, I'm not, I'm definitely not on the corner or riding around selling drugs all day. You know, I'm a functioning musician with two kids. You know, what I mean, I'm on the road or I'm <laughs> on daddy duty. But uh, once that's a part of you, it's never going to leave you. You're always going to have those stories. It's always going to be those uh, street undertones. And you know, I come from a place, uh, a place of underdogs. So I'm always going to be thinking with that underdog mentality. I'm always going to feel like I got to rebel or I got to resist or, you know, it's somebody putting something in my way. You know what I mean? Like if I try to run out the room and you put that chair in front of the door, you know what I mean? Like I'm going to knock the hell out of that chair, you know what I mean, with all my might, you know what I mean? Or if you tell me the door, like I'm going to kick the door down, I'm going to kick a little bit harder, you know what I mean? Because, you know, at that point, you know, I'm fighting for my life. You were acquitted a few years ago of sexual assault in Austria, mm-hmm. and you very much, to your credit, have talked publicly about the fact that you don't want your story to be shown as an example of accusations of rape frequently or regularly being false, which they're not right. um, any more than other accusations of major crime. Right. <laughs> Nobody ever tells somebody that just got robbed that they're lying that they got robbed. But there there was a lot of exculpatory evidence in your case um, that eventually led to you being uh, found not guilty. And if I didn't, if I didn't, personally, if I didn't believe that exculpatory evidence, you wouldn't be here. Correct. Um, Appreciate that. <laughs> but, you know, you were well into your career when this happened. It happened thousands of miles from where you live right. in a country where you don't speak the language. You know, you were, you were arrested in France and eventually extradited to Austria. And you spent a lot of time either living in Europe because you weren't allowed to leave Europe or in jail in Europe. Right. To, to what extent did you trust that there was an end to that? In sight. I mean, I, I presume that you knew yourself to be innocent, but beyond that, to what extent did you think this will have an end? I thought it was going to end with me doing 10 years in Austrian prison. The fact that I knew that I was innocent was the hard part because it was like, okay, damn, if I'm, I don't even know this girl. Like, I never, <laughs> I never even gave her a high five. You know what I mean? Like, if she walked in the room, I probably wouldn't even be able to tell you what she looks like right now. I'm like, bro, if they can indict me all the way over here and and must you know muster enough to whatever, because it was zero point zero 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 evidence whatsoever linking me to this. So whatever they mustered up, 
to get a, a grand jury in another country to indict me on something that I definitely didn't do after they've taken my blood, my uh, my saliva, my plasma, my semen, all my body fluids to see if it matched the DNA that they already have there for the rape. And it's a zero, 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 zero match. And you have no evidence of me even touching this girl. If you can do all of that, y'all going to fry me. I'm going to jail. I, I know I'm going to jail because... I'm I'm already in a in an impossible position. I shouldn't even be here, you know. So the whole time, my thinking, my notion was like, man, somebody got it out for me. This got to be, this is I don't. It's some. Is this bigger than the Austrian government? Like I said, this, this is bigger than Nino Brown. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like, man, this some 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 power that be. I don't know, man. Because I'm like, this is totally ridiculous. If I was any other person, if I wasn't black, if I I don't know, maybe if I was a, I think about this, maybe if I was a more popular rapper, maybe I wouldn't have been in that position. Maybe if I wasn't a street rapper, I wouldn't have been in that position. Because one of my first hearings in France, well, the first thing they said, oh yeah, he, they gave out, they, they gave a whole gang history on me. He's in a gang from Gary, Indiana. He had gang ties, mob ties. No, we can't grant him a bill. I'm like, how does that come up in a rape case? You know what I'm saying? I, I just was always thinking that, like, man, if I was this person or that person, I wouldn't be in this position. You know, I hate to reiterate it, but, you know, I look at the way things were handled with, uh, like, ASAP Rocky. Like, he got a whole presidential recommendation, you know what I mean? So, you know, for something that, you know, he actually, you know, did, was found. he did. Yeah, yeah, he did. Got, you know, found guilty of Like, I'm not, you know, it was a lot of people comparing my situation to his, and I'm like, man, hold up. Like, <laughs> ain't no comparison, dog. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, my situation was totally, I was, you know, first of all, wrongfully accused, man. And just uh, my country that I pay taxes to, they didn't really help me. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like I didn't get really any support from the rap community like that. You know what I mean? It was a couple, you know, the, 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 you know guys that I, you know, deal with personally you know they gave me you know that showed me love but you know for the most part and i and i and, and, and i don't you know it don't matter man you know what i mean because you know I'm, I'm not i'm not crying for the you know support of the rap community at all i can care less but i'm saying like you know when there's something like that on the line i mean the thing that i thought about was that while you know you went you were arrested while on tour in Europe years after the incident had been alleged to have happened. Right. And by the time you were arrested and ended up having to spend, what, like six or nine months in, in Europe yep, in jail, yep. addressing the situation, you had a kid mm -hmm. that was back home without you. Right. That, that was the first thing that I thought of as a, as a parent of three, like beyond being in jail for a significant portion of that time and having to deal with living in a foreign country without any means of income and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was right. just like you couldn't be there for your kid. Right. And I was just feel, I was just seeing my world just crumble, man. Like from that, man, I'm like, man, that was, that was probably the worst thing, the biggest thing, like having to like fly my daughter and her mother over there to France and Austria and my mom. That was, that was crazy having to fly my mom over there and, you know, just, man, you don't know jail until you do jail abroad because <laughs> it's a whole different thing man you damn near got to be rich to do jail abroad you know what i'm saying like that could have collapsed my whole career you know thank god it didn't did it change the way you approached your music career and your art um when you when you came came through it uh i'm not gonna say it changed the way I approach my career definitely changed the way I approach people, everyday people. It was definitely a dark, dark period um, after that psychologically where I didn't know if I even wanted to even be in the music industry or be in the rap game period. Because I'm like, man, this is, a, this, is, this, this is a hazard to this job. Like if a woman could just say that I, you know, raped her out of the blue, 
and I can get locked up and go through all of that. I don't want to go through that no more, man. That was mental anguish, physical anguish. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't want to go through that no more. Not only did it like affect my, uh, you know, uh, affect me psychological with, you know, with wanting to be in a rap game, it affected, you know, the way I treated women. You know, I didn't want to, I, I kind of, I didn't even want to deal with, you know, the mother of my child. I'm not going to say that I resented women, but it was some kind of, some kind of form of resistance, you know what I mean, uh, for a little while, you know what I mean? Um, I don't know. I just like, I didn't want to like go out. I didn't want to chill. I didn't want to go on dates. I didn't want to. You know, it was just like really me. It was a, it was a form of depression, I say. You know, um, it was affecting everything from you know my sex life to all kind of all kind of things. You know, and then how you like looking for love, you know, in the wrong places. I was reading an interview that you did with um, uh, actually with with NPR with uh, Franny Kelly and Alicia Heed Muhammad, and one of the things that you said was that you prayed before shows. Mm-hmm. And the way you described it struck me because you didn't describe praying for success in the show or, you know, to have a great show or to even, like, you know, allow me to share my gift or something that you hear people talk about, how their relationship with God is, you know, which people have gifts, you know, and they should share them. I I get that. Um but the thing that you said you prayed for was execution was the word that you used, which is to say the like to be able to do the thing that you were there to do. Right. And I was I was really struck by that. Right. Yeah. Um when I go do a show, man, like um it's crazy that you mentioned like gifts people have and they want to share them. I guess I am sharing a gift. But uh, you know, I kinda put the crowd on mute. I got a game plan or what. I want to see done out there or, I, or what I want to do or what I want to come across with. I just find like the point in the back of the crowd that I want to like, it could be a nail on the wall. It could be anything, you know, I just want to find something that I want to look at all night. And I look at that. I don't even think about the crowd. Of course I can like physically hear them and see them, but you know, mentally I'm locked in a whole nother zone. My, uh, my preparation for it is, you know, similar to, I don't know, a ball player or a boxer. I want to, execute the game plan you know i want to do everything that i said i wanted to do if i said i wanted to do these three songs acapella back to back without taking a breath or without taking a break i'm gonna do that because it's just me and the dj up there you know no theatrics you know you ain't got no like blimps flying down like travis scott and all these you know all these guys with all this stuff these these guys got and those fireworks and all that not yet you know at least but um you know i just want to see you i just want people to leave with um the thought that, uh, you know, physically it ain't that many human beings that can do what he did on stage rapping, you know. You know, I, it just occurred to me sincerely what it reminded me of, and that was I grew up with a parent in AA, and I used to go to meetings with them, and they always do the serenity prayer in AA, which the, the thrust of which is simply... Uh, the will to change the things I can change the you know yeah the serenity to accept the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference right. I'm getting it wrong sorry everybody who's in the program um, <laughs> but you know it's like it's like what you are asking God for in that prayer is to let you be within yourself and do this thing that you can do mm-hmm like you're not asking for special powers or anything. Mm-hmm. You're just asking to be able to do the thing that's within you. Yeah, just let me control what I can control and anything that I can't control, just let it be. Like if the light man fall down off the damn curtain, that's on him, you know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> I pray he be all right, you know what I mean? Like I can't, you know, cause, you know, I perform with a lot of big festivals and things of that nature and I see a lot of other guys, uh, you know, shows, they got dancers, you know what I mean? I think I seen Drake come on with like 30 hammer dancers one time, you know what I mean? 
you know, I got a hammer dancer specifically. <laughs> Probably they so. were wearing ha- were they wearing harem pants or Man. how do you identify a? Man, I got to perform before you know a lot of that stuff. Sometimes, sometimes after some of that stuff. So it's like, you know, being in the lineup with that, I got to give them something raw. You know, and that's what I feel like I've been doing the past ten years. Well, Freddie Gibbs, I really appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me on Bullseye. It was really nice to meet you and get to talk to you. Thank you, man. I opened up, man. Some of my girlfriends going to break up with you, man. I'm talking about all these girls, but I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Freddie Gibbs, Bandana, his new record with Mad Lib is out now. It's great. Let's go out on one more track from the album. This is called... That's it, the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park, beautiful Westlake, Los Angeles, California. In the park this week, a trio of dancers shot a video next to the lake. I'm told it was an impressive display of athleticism, that one of them had yellow sneakers, and that the wildlife and other park visitors regarded the scene indifferently. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Great band. Thanks to them for letting us use it. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Our thanks to Helen at WESA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for helping with that interview with Tobacco. And before you go, did you know that Bullseye has 20 years of archives? Okay, it's like 18 years of archives, but still a lot of archives. You can find them all on our website, MaximumFun.org. You can also find many of them on our YouTube channel, which you can find by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Easy to listen to, easy to share there if you're one of those people who listens to stuff on YouTube. I know there's a lot of people who do that. Uh, You can also like us on Facebook. We share our interviews there. You can listen to them right there on Facebook if you want to. That's facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You into interviews with musicians? We did too. Uh, How about checking out our interview with Nile Rogers from Chic? Whether or not you're into Chic, you will love it. Nile Rogers is like the most amazing guy ever. That guy is a, a joy, a delight that guy is. They're all on our website, MaximumFun.org, or in your favorite podcast app. You can find them. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.